0: This is episode 65 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 65 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the University of Notre Dame's De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the Center. In this episode, recorded at the New York Encounter, we chat with Abigail Favali, Dean of the College of Humanities at George Fox University. We chat about the incarnation of Christ, the consumerist approach to human sexuality, the communion of saints, and the importance of womanhood. Let's pop into the studio for this delightful conversation. Abigail Favalli, thank you so much for coming to be on the podcast. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? What did you study? Those sorts of things.
1: Sure. Uh, so I, I'm a child of the Intermountain West. I was born in Idaho. I had um, a childhood in Utah, and then moved back to Idaho for high school. So I lived really in the Mormon Belt, is what I call it, like yeah. eastern Idaho to, down through Utah. And uh, the Napoleon
0: dynamite region. Oh yeah. Okay.
1: That's basically my high school. Like okay. was, I think it was filmed just a couple hours south, but yeah, that's my that's my high school experience. Um and I I love I love tater tots to this day. <laughs> Excellent. So I was raised an evangelical Protestant. And then when I went to college, so I became really interested in the question of woman, right? Especially what it means to be a woman in the context of Christianity in my kind of evangelical upbringing I don't think had very satisfying answers for that. So there wasn't a lot of conversation about what women should be and do except, you know, maybe some kind of restrictive gender roles and, you know, become a wife and mother, which are wonderful things, but also I had lots of different things I was excited to do, right? So I didn't always feel like I fit that that narrow box and you know, it being a good evangelical, I was very much steeped in scripture as a kid and, and the, but the parts of the Bible I loved the most were the Old Testament stories about women. I mean, I just read and reread those all over, over and over again. I loved Jezebel. You know, she's just the best villain ever. She's wonderful. <laughs> I still, you know, I, I still have some like, affection for her story. Um, but aside from those, those narratives in the Bible, there, there wasn't a lot of, possibility or a lot of depth um in thinking about womanhood and the kind of of calling that could be on a woman's heart from god um and so if, in college i really began to wrestle with that more intensely you know college is time of life when you're making a lot of decisions about what you want to do in the future and do you want to get married do you want to have a career who are you <laughs> you know all these questions of identity so when i was in college i became really immersed in feminism. I, I I thought, oh finally, here is here is some kind of discourse or some kind of answer um, that's gonna gonna explain this or gonna fulfill this quest that I was on, I guess about the meaning of woman and um initially, I think feminism was a really good influence it it did give me a sense of women's dignity and and at first it 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 um, dovetailed with my Christianity pretty well you know i I remember first encountering. The communion of saints, you know, in this little Anglican church that I attended. And I wrote a paper on Hildegard. And, you know, I just began to explore or get more of a sense of the the feminine genealogy of the church, right, which I had just never learned beyond the Bible um, as a child. But then after I graduated college, I began to drift away from Christianity. Um, And I think at that point, my my feminism became almost my religion in a way, and that was how I looked at everything, right? So I I judged, I assessed the value or the truth of Christianity from kind of my feminist perspective rather than the other way around. It was no longer my foundation. And so then the next 10 years, I basically, you know, I went to graduate school studying gender theory and feminist literary criticism, got a doctorate, um, went into the academy, and I was very much trying to kind of like carve out a niche as a, a feminist academic um, and published in that area. And then uh, at the end of my 20s, I kind of weirdly and suddenly converted to Catholicism. It's a, it's a bizarre story. <laughs> but um, I basically had a an escalating spiritual crisis that coincided with becoming a mother for the first time. And that really, I think, disrupted the tidiness of my feminist worldview. I began to ask questions that I hadn't let myself ask before. And I think with my with my defenses down, you know, God really just hit me with a, an arrow of grace, and I I kind of became Catholic, you know, in a bit of a whirlwind. And then when when the dust settled, I was like, oh wait, what have I done? What what do Catholics actually believe? Like, what's this contraception thing? Like, I don't know, you know. And then the first couple of years being Catholic, that's when I really began to to understand what the Catholic understanding of reality actually was and what it asked of me. And and I, I think it was much more of an interior conversion unfolded over those two years, so.
0: You were married already. Uh-huh, yep. Is your husband
1: Catholic? So my husband has a similar background okay. um, as I do. And we met in college, right? We both went to the same college. And then um, we got married right before moving to Scotland where I was doing graduate school. And and then when I was kind of in my sort of like postmodern feminist nominally Christian phase, he was more intellectually honest than I was. And he was just like, no, I'm just going to peace out and be a skeptic. So he, he also um, stepped away from Christianity while I tried to kind of like hold on to it, but not in a way that was, that really had any content to it. Um, and then in the past few years, he's had his own kind of return to spirituality, um, to Christianity in a sense. And it's still, it's still, he's still, um, it's still working, getting worked out, right? Sure. So, yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: now, you actually have a book about your conversion. I do, yes. The Into the Deep, An Unlikely Catholic Conversion. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's on my stack to read. <laughs> I've not read it, I must confess. That's all right. Um, why, I mean, like you say, you just found yourself Catholic, but do you know, like, what attracted you to even— okay. Cross, yes. cross that threshold, you know, uh, across the door to, to look into the church.
1: So if I had... There was one thread, I think, like this like golden thread that I never let go of, and that was the incarnation. Of course, when I was a postmodern, I didn't think that the incarnation was like a literal incarnation, but I thought like this is a beautiful metaphor, right? There was just something about it that grabbed me, like something about it that felt deeply true. And... The problem, however, is if I'm, if I'm coming at this as, as just kind of a postmodern theorist, the idea of incarnation as just an idea doesn't really make sense because the whole concept of incarnation is about embodiment, right? It's about kind of the union of the spiritual and the physical. Um, and so, I kind of realized that, like, if I'm going to be serious about this incarnation, then it can't just be a, an idea I kick around or a nice metaphor I tell myself. Um, I remember I was I was really haunted by a line I got from Flannery O'Connor where she, she describes having a conversation with someone saying, oh, the Eucharist, it's such a beautiful symbol. And she responds, well, if it's just a symbol, then to hell with it. And that idea haunted me because I was like, oh, this is how I view Christianity. This is how I view the incarnation. All these things that I supposedly treasure, I really think are just symbolic. And if that's true, then yeah, you know, to hell with it, right? Like if this can't offer any real conversion. So um, when I had this longing to follow that thread of incarnation more deeply into Christianity, but my my feminism was holding me back, especially from Catholicism. There was a lot that attracted me to Catholicism. Like I said, the genealo- the feminine genealogy, um, Mary, the incarnation, the sacraments. I mean, Catholicism is so bodily, it's so incarnational, right? Um, and the things that that Protestantism really abandoned in the Reformation are all those things. They're the mostly the feminine, bodily, sacramental aspects of the faith. But, you know, the all-male priesthood, that was a total deal breaker. So it wasn't until I think my feminism kind of weakened enough for me to begin to see beyond it. And then as soon as that happened, God was just like, just grabbed me by the neck. and Right like, through the crack. Totally, yeah. totally. It's, I mean, it's really weird. It's a weird story. You should read the book just because it's, it's a weird story. I didn't know any Catholics at the time. Wow. I'd never gone to mass.
0: I wasn't like... I mean, you're in Western Oregon at the time, too, right? So this is, I mean, this is where I'm from. This is the least churched region in the United States, you know.
1: Yeah, and I was, yes. So I I was in a Protestant context in that area. So it was was actually convenient. I think it was providential, not just convenient, that I was working at a faith-based institution at the time because I also couldn't just walk away. Like, I was continually confronted with the question of faith, right? Um, So that's... But it's really hard to be at a faith-based institution when you're an angsty postmodern, you know, ex-evangelical. Let me tell you, so much easier now to be there as a Catholic.
0: Well, so that's actually then. I mean, you're at George Fox, mm-hmm. and, and being a you're college dean. I mean, you you mm-hmm. have yes. significant responsibility yeah. in formation. Uh, and so, how are you? How, how do you fit in there as, yeah. as a Catholic? And, you
1: know, I like I said, it's actually been really a lot easier being there now that I have a much. A, a much stronger faith, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I take spiritual formation really seriously and George Fox is an evangelical Quaker school, but, um, Herbert and all the Hoover all the f- went
0: there. What? Herbert Hoover went there. Oh yeah. yeah <laughs> like, I mean, Claim to fame. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um,
1: yeah, so it's, but it's very ecumenical. So all the Christian are, are the, all the faculty are Christian, but the faith statement is really just creedal. You know, it was just funny because Quakers are non creedal, but anyway, <laughs> um, yeah so I think there's so much shared ground in you know small o orthodox Christianity, sure. so it's that's where I kind of focus
0: and face and in a way we need to link arms because there aren't Absolutely. many yeah this is this is already countercultural for Western Oregon mm-hmm. that, yes. to even be a person of faith. Uh, I saw in an interview, you you told Marcus Grodi that um, you had developed this great admiration for the women of the Bible, mm-hmm. and you, you yeah, talked yeah. about it, um, but that as an evangelical Christian, it, it stopped at the end of the Bible. Yep. Um, and so now you're Catholic. Have you discovered favorite women among oh the communion goodness. of saints?
1: So, it's just, it's such a rich treasury. I mean, you know, it's so funny that I... I've been on, you know, I've been on this kind of like spiritual quest for 20 something years, you know, wanting to better understand what it means to be a woman in the context of Christianity and Catholicism has the best answer for that. I mean, that's the the surprising twist of my conversion story is that what I sought in in secular postmodern feminism was fulfilled in Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church, right? There are so many amazing female saints in the church. I mean, it's just um, you know, I mentioned Hildegard, so she was a, an early one that I even encountered before I was Catholic. Um, uh, St. Edith Stein is a big one, so Teresa Benedict of the Cross. So um, I still write about women and gender, and her thought, her philosophy has been very formative for me. Um, so she's she's also someone... I've also really de- recently developed um, a devotion to Joan of Arc. So I actually have a huge tattoo of Joan on my oh, arm that I got in January, right, because I had an experience last summer I had a close friend who died and I was giving the eulogy at his funeral and I had this experience that unlike anything I'd ever felt before which was this I I guess the only way to describe it is like I, I felt the power the full power and truth of the gospel and especially the resurrection in that moment I just felt this like this strength and this conviction that, was absolutely from the Holy Spirit, you know. It wasn't this euphoric, like, you know, hands in the air kind of thing. It was just, like, this power, this sense of, like, strength and conviction. And it was so – I knew it wasn't going to last, right, but I was like, I need to remember this. And so Joan, for me, you know, represents um, that, that kind of strength and that, that calm, collected, convicted, rooted faith. And and so I've been kind of leaning into into that um, and and praying praying to her more and having her be kind of a a guide for me. So those are two more recent women that. But it's so that's what's so wonderful. You know, they just like suddenly uh, a, a saint will come out of nowhere and really become almost like a mentor. Yeah, um, it's really wonderful. A
0: friend. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Mother Cabrini is my oh, absolute favorite, and yeah. my go-to. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, we we have these these friends that that we truly can call upon and yes. say, I, can you can you pray for me on this one too? Yeah. You know, pray with me. is yep. what that's about. Well, now, you've been writing about uh, gender and femininity mm-hmm. from, for years, as, yeah. as you point out. Now, uh, in 2018, you spoke at a conference hosted by our colleagues at mm-hmm. the McGrath Institute for Church Life uh, in a talk entitled, What is Sex For?, mm-hmm. which I will link to in the show notes. Um in that talk you, you speak about the consumerist paradigm portrayal of sex yeah. in our contemporary American culture where uh, other persons are treated really as mere instruments to mm-hmm. fulfill one's own desires yeah. or or even a means just to achieve my pleasure mm-hmm. um Kind of then going further down that rabbit hole, the paradigm kind of posits even one's own body mm-hmm. as an, as yet another instrument or sometimes even an obstacle
1: yes. to fulfilling
0: <laughs> one's own desires, right? right? Uh, I hear that and I think about the, you know, Cartesian mind-body dualism, mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, you know, where the I exists with, within a body, not mm-hmm. as a body, um, Carter Snead would be very proud because, of course, the subtitle of his <laughs> book is Remembering the Body in Public yeah. Bioethics. Uh, you went on in your talk to explain that this consumerist paradigm has had disastrous consequences in our society, mm-hmm. especially for women yes. who bear the burden of procreation yeah. uh, and and bear burdens as a result of this in ways men do not. Yeah, Can you unpack that a little bit? Sure.
1: Um, so the basic idea—so the consumerist paradigm, as I call it, um, is— it's really built upon the presumption of, or it's built on a model of maleness, of male sexuality. And by that I mean, you know, a man, you know, a man can have sex, you know, till he dies from exhaustion, but he will never get pregnant from that, right? Um, So even though, like, a man might be fertile, you know, if if he ever... You know, when a man procreates, it's the it's the woman who gestates the child, right? So, if we go through the world and have this vision of sexuality um, and and think of sex as a recreational activity that doesn't lead to pregnancy because we've kind of solved that, you know, and sex is no longer procreational; it's simply recreational. It's simply a means to pleasure, um, and it's only telos is the orgasm, right? Um, well, the problem is when. That doesn't work out. And when the procreational potential of sex is actualized, it's always women who carry the burden, Mm -hmm. right? So I think basically we've kind of sold a bill of goods, sold women a bill of goods, basically saying like, we've freed you from your femaleness because of, you know, through contraception and access to abortion. And so you can now be just as sexually free and sexually autonomous as men. Um, But the problem is when a woman gets pregnant, you know, she has to either... Um, raise the child herself, you know, give it up for adoption, or you know, kind of violently have an abortion. So it's there's there's a cost to her, yeah. right? And so that's kind of what I mean that you know, modeling this consumerist paradigm on um, this this idealized male biology, and then kind of having this strange cultural amnesia about female biology um, has has actually done women a disservice because now there's just a cultural expectation that well women won't get pregnant and then when they do it's kind of their fault and their their thing to deal with it's and their, their problem. problem to deal
0: with mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Well now you presented at the 2021 DCEC Fall Conference mm-hmm. uh, on Human Dignity as part of a power-packed panel <laughs> and, uh, alongside Erica Bakayoki and Leah Labresco Sargent in, in a session on the, the dignity of the sexed body. Right, And so it's very much related to what we were just kind of talking right. about, right? Um, your contribution was a reflection on the loss of the connection between woman and female. Yes. And like I say, you know, this is a continuation of that that line of thought we were just discussing because the, the prevailing cultural fixation on gender identity um, sees the human body as just another obstacle to the right. self-definition that mm-hmm. underlies the expressive individualism that is at the core of kind of the American right. psyche. Yes. Um, but I ask, what can be done? I mean, do we... First off, why is it important that woman and female be, you know, reconnected as you kind of uh, spoke about in your talk?
1: Right. Well, yeah, I think why is it important? Well, I I think the the framework that sees woman as no longer connected to female is basically asserting a vision of womanhood that is is purely a social construct. It's almost like this this artifice or this this kind of Costume in a way that that anyone can step into and appropriate, um, and so it's something you just sort of declare. So one of the problems is if fem if, if woman can mean anything, then it it means nothing. <laughs> you know, like a, a word that can mean anything no longer means anything, right? right? So it right. becomes like this empty signifier. Um, and then if you attempt to define it in a certain way that still makes it open to anyone who wishes to to um inhabit it then it tends to look a lot like just asserting pretty regressive stereotypes so you know well you are a woman if um you know you have what look like breasts and you wear high heels or you know you present yourself in a certain way um or you like certain things you have more feminine typical interests right so Mm -hmm. So either attempts to leave it totally undefined, make render the, name, render the word woman completely meaningless, um, or attempts to define it then reify pretty regressive stereotypes that we've actually almost had almost gotten beyond, right? So it's right. this kind of strange turn back into those. And also the, the appropriation of the word woman in this way leaves female human beings, of which there are many on this planet half the human race, actually, um, leaves them without a name, right? What do you then, so it's this strange unnaming of human females in order to take that word and concept to name something else, which is never really grounded in anything real, right? Um, And I also get concerned too, because this kind of relates to the regressive stereotype, um, that some descriptions of what it means to be female sound a lot like, they sound pretty pornographic almost, right? So there are some trans-identified men who've written, like um, Andrea Longchu, I think, and Julia Serrano, that describe their um, experience of of what they say, like when they feel like a woman, what that means is, they like being sexually dominated, and that's what's essential to being female, right? And so I think any, any woman, and by woman, I mean biological human female, would probably recoil at that idea, right? Yeah. So there's very much, I think, in, in this attempt to appropriate woman and make it a category that's open to men um, there has been this unnaming and even this dehumanization of women, um, and this forgetting of bodily reality. You know that mm-hmm. that honestly does kind of seem like, um, you know, a, a male luxury in a way, right? Like you you know yeah cuz you don't you know you're not actually having to deal with the the things that um women have to deal with in terms of like menstruation or pregnancy or lactation right these very real and very bodily things that are just part of part of the the female experience and i think this relates back to in some ways the what we were talking about earlier with the the consumerist paradigm of sexuality because i think one big cultural shift in in both of these things is the the acceptance of contraception in our culture and how that has reshaped our moral imagination. And so what it what it means to be a woman now is no longer connected to procreative potentiality, but it's really about just sexual pleasure and sexual desire, right? It's like this pornified definition of what it means to be a woman. And so as long as you can approximate that in some way, that's all it takes um, to kind of a achieve that category right but in all this debate it's very it's never really clear like what are the necessary and sufficient grounds for being a woman right no one can really answer that or if they try to answer that it will lead to some of the dissatisfying um, responses that i've just discussed
0: yeah yeah, I see that on Twitter. People are like, just define woman for me. And
1: Yeah, that what question is yeah exactly. Ignored. Like when you say identify as a woman, like what is the thing you're identifying as, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's almost this sleight of hand happening where there's like a, a simultaneous rejection of the definition of woman as a as a human female. And also this reference back to that definition, right? Because usually someone who is 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 trying to appropriate that idea is somehow mimicking the appearance of a human female, right? So the meaning is both deflected and and held on to in, in a way that just really doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah.
0: One can look at the news and see, you know, Jeopardy is celebrating the winningest woman ever on the show mm-hmm. who is – a man who identifies as a woman, right? And just last week, you know, the state champion uh, uh, in swimming mm-hmm. is a man who identifies as a woman, right? And you you spoke here, we're at the New York Experience together, and mm-hmm. you spoke in a, a session on on gender and, and body about the very real threats to women that are that are posed by this, like for example, in prison, mm-hmm. um, it, where where we segregate by sex, mm-hmm. and yet checking a box could Allow a man who identifies as a woman to be in this vulnerable population, right? Yeah, um, and then you also raised an interesting thing here in your presentation uh, today at the at the New York Encounter, the idea of the money that's involved in th- in this right. movement. I wonder if you can kind of share a little bit about that. And and again, we're going to link to the live stream so that people can see the fuller conversation. Sure.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the many concerns I have about this this kind of emergent gender phenomenon is the amount, I mean, is the medicalization of gender nonconforming conforming people, especially young people. Um, so now the the dominant framework that's being used to interpret all kinds of different experiences is one that says, well, if you feel this way, then the solution is to physically change your body and transition to the other sex. There are a lot of problems with this. One is that it's a it's ultimately a temptation because it's a promise that can't deliver. It's not it's not actually possible to change one's sex. You can you can mimic the appearance of the opposite sex, but it takes quite a lot of medical intervention to do that. So you you have to take and remain on cross-sex hormones that come with a wide variety of risks including Increased risks of all kinds of cancers. Um, for example, a, a woman who takes cross-sex hormones eventually, f- after about five years, it's recommended that she have a hysterectomy because her her uterus will atrophy, right? So, starved of of estrogen, then the the female reproductive organs start to atrophy, which is incredibly painful, and then so that leads to sterility as well. So there, you know, increased risk of stroke. There's all kinds of. Of medical risks here, and certainly with very invasive surgeries. And also, it's very expensive, right? So, one, one trans person named Scott, I I think it's Scott Nugent. I'm not sure now if I have his, his last name right. But so Scott describes his transition as costing almost a million dollars, right? So, if you, if you just kind of take that one, example and then think about you know the the exponential increase of the number of especially young people who are now kind of coming out as trans and being put on this conveyor belt um, to medicalization there's just so much money to be made right because you're medicalizing someone for life like this if, if you if you choose to mimic the appearance of the opposite sex that has to be an effort that's continually sustained or your biology will reassert itself right and then some of the effects are irreversible so it's um, it's hard to come back from that as well if you change your mind. And I, I worry about this in the U.S. especially. So in, in Europe, there are countries who are actually correcting, who are starting to correct some of the excesses here. Like Sweden and Finland are really rolling back almost entirely on um, transition for minors. And the U.K., there's there's quite a significant pushback as well. But that's not happening in the U.S. And the U.S. is it's a big country, and we have a very decentralized and profit-driven healthcare system. And I, I think there's an enormous amount of money to be made on, and there are, you know, like Planned Parenthood, for example, has, has already kind of jumped on this train. And so it's, um, they, you're able to go and get cross-sex hormones there without, without being seen by a doctor, without going through any kind of psychological assessment. You can just go in and walk out with a, a prescription immediately, and you know, if you go to their website, I, I wrote a book on on all this, and so I I did this research. You go to their website, it will mention some of the side effects, but they're all they only mention the cosmetic ones. They don't even mention sterility as a possible side effect, and certainly not organ atrophy. They mention things like body hair or you know baldness or you know voice changes, right? These kind of superficial cosmetic changes. And again, there's a lot of money to be made there, right? So that's something that I I really worry about. I I hope that the lawsuits will start to happen as more and more young people, um, and, and you were, we're seeing that right—the numbers of of detransitioners, those who've gone through some aspect of medical transition and then turned back to re-identify as their as their natal sex—we're seeing some lawsuits begin to happen, and I'm hoping that that I, I, I'm thinking that's the only thing that will really stop this juggernaut from from totally taking over in the U.S. Yeah. Wow.
0: Well, now you are a professor college dean, mm-hmm. a writer uh, in multiple genres, including essays, short fiction, literary criticism, gender issues. Uh, your newest book, The Genesis of Gender, uh, will be published shortly here by Ignatius Press. What are you working on now? What's next?
1: <gasps> I'm taking a breather. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, that's a great question. So I have another book on, under contract with Ignatius, but I don't know what I'm going to write on yet. OK. So I'm kicking around a few ideas. Right now, I think because the the genesis of gender is about to be released in May, so I'm kind of taking a breather for a little bit and waiting for, because there'll probably be some, you know, book promo stuff and, you know, and there really is so much, I think, to be written about this. And I think there's such a need for thoughtful and compassionate responses to this from a Christian and especially Catholic perspective, because one, one thing that I do think the U.S. has that is an asset is, you know, religious freedom is protected, right? So there is the possibility of religious institutions being places almost like oasis in our in our country where, you know, people are are able to get a different kind of education, for example. Um, but in critiquing, I do think it's important to say, and I want to I want to be careful when I talk about this that. I'm very critical of the framework, like what I call the gender paradigm, what some people call gender ideology or gender theory. I'm very critical of it as a a philosophical system, um, as a way of understanding reality in the human person, and I think it's harmful. But I also think that the people who get caught up in it, those people are are people we need to to care about deeply. Um, And that, you know, I really believe that there's... There are good desires that are driving people to seek um, meaning in, in this framework, in the gender paradigm, you know, a longing for body-soul unity that they don't, for some reason, aren't experiencing, a longing for community, perhaps, or for belonging. And those desires are good, right? And those desires are things that I think ultimately should, you know, connect us with the divine, connect us with God, um, and they're being kind of misdirected toward, again, like the the... Empty promises of of what I what I see in the gender paradigm. So it would be wonderful for our our parishes and our schools to be places where we speak honestly about the reality and beauty of the sexed body and the sacramentality of the body, um, but that we also are just open to people who are trying to figure this out, you know, because I think it's going to be, I think it's getting messy. and I think it's going to be messy for a while. Um, and so the the Catholic understanding of accompaniment, I think is, you know, that Pope Francis talks about, I think is really important here that we don't just like come down like a hammer on people because I think a lot of people out there are suffering and, you know, there's this one dominant framework that's now translating their experiences for them. And that framework's not good, but those people, you know, those people are... Those people are good and they're holy and sacred and um, made in the image of God. So,
0: yeah. it comes back to incarnation yeah. and to relationship, You know. Uh, <laughs> yep.
1: Yep. Yeah. I guess that's my that's my you know my lifelong I guess kind of devotion is to this idea of incarnation and um, and it is really what led me into the Catholic Church, right? Just I've I see in Catholicism such a uh, celebration of the body that certainly was not present in the kind of Christianity that I grew up in, and certainly I didn't find in feminism. And so I think that's one reason why I'm so kind of impassioned to defend that aspect of the Catholic faith.
0: Yeah. Well, Abigail Favalli, thank you so much for your time, yeah, and thank you. Uh, thank you for your contributions to the Fall Conference and to these important conversations that engage the culture and the world of our mm-hmm. of our
1: experience. Yeah. Well, thank you.
0: Thank you to Dean Abigail Favali. In the show notes, you'll find a link to her books, to several of her presentations, and to her personal homepage. Thank you also to our hosts at the 2022 New York Encounter, sponsored by the lay Catholic movement, Communion and Liberation. Learn more about the New York Encounter and CL in the show notes and at clonline.org. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes, licensed under the creative commons attribution license we'll see you next time on ethics and culture cast until then make good decisions